thrown around outside of the church. Um, I won't list all of them because, well, let's be honest, I can't, I couldn't, shouldn't. Um, but one word that you don't hear outside of the church very often, that is outside of Christian circles, is this idea of being saved. Like you don't often hear non-Christians say, I was saved, unless, of course, they happen to be drowning and somebody jumped into the pool and swam, ripped them up and you know, saved them, right? Or Bondi Beach, right? The Bondi Lifesavers. They save people, you know, and look cool at the same time. And, you know, but you don't hear people say, I was saved. Or, or maybe you hear that when uh, perhaps someone wandered out, not realizing it, talking on their phone or whatever they might have been, or texting, and they wandered out into traffic, and another person, whoa, and, and grabbed them, pulled them back, right, from oncoming traffic. And, and they say, whoa, you saved me. Or maybe a little bit more serious, uh, someone's kidneys has completely failed. And then a friend, a family member, donates their kidneys to save that person. Basically, if they weren't aided by another's decisive action, well, then they'd die. But in terms of our spiritual condition, many folks don't have this same sense of urgency. When it comes to this idea of being saved, there's not that same sense of urgency when it's spiritual. Uh, perhaps because it's the average Aussie looks at things of what they can taste, touch, smell, and it's very materialistic culture here. And so things that are spiritual, well, they're invisible. And so when they say, well, you need to be saved spiritually, it's like, I'm not even sure what that means. Saved from what? D-U-N-N-O, da-na. And then they think, well, look, I'm all right. I don't think I need, really need to, I mean, I don't think I need to be saved. I think I'm a pretty good person, right? I don't think I, I, don't think I really need to be saved spiritually. I'm all right. But the Bible teaches that we have a problem, friends, which is far worse than sinking to the bottom of any pool. We have a problem that is far worse than oncoming traffic. We have a problem that is far worse than us being caught in a burning building or having kidneys that are failing. We need to be saved from the greatest enemy, sin, and its consequences. We actually need to be saved by God himself. That's the core of the Christian faith. It's all about salvation. It's all about God saving sinners. It is the essence of Christianity. Christianity could be argued as a rescuing religion. I know we don't like to hear, well, it's not, it's not a religion. You get what I'm saying? They call it a rescuing relationship, if you like. But at its essence, at its core, the fundamentals, Christianity is a saving religion. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you boil down today's text that Ralph just read to us, you could sum it up in three words, three words. Marvelous, powerful words. He saved us. 
That phrase is really the center point for today's text. It's the heart of today's passage. It's found at the beginning of verse 5. Can you see it? Three powerful words, he saved us. Friend, that great reality of Christian faith is summed up right there. He saved us. And he saved us from what? Well, from sin, from its power, from its penalty. Now, I want you to also notice, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, when Ralph read that, or maybe some of you have had a go at memorizing this, have you noticed in this passage, particularly in verses 3 through 7, the emphasis here is placed on the Lord's action. Did you see that? It's the Lord's, it's the Lord's being, uh, it's His action, it's, it's His, He's the object. Uh, God is the initiator. Does that make sense? People are the recipients. God is the author of salvation from beginning to end. Do you understand, as you read that, Paul is emphasizing the independent, uninfluenced sovereignty with which God saves totally outside of us. He saved us. And because the focus is on his saving work, all of our points are going to flow from this statement, he saved us. So as we march through these verses... Well, think about how God saved us by His kindness, by His love, by His mercy, by His regeneration, by His Spirit, by His Son. See, He saved us, in your mind, as a banner, everything flowing from that. He saved us by His kindness, by His love, by His mercy, by His regeneration, by His Spirit, and by His Son. That's where we are headed this morning. And rather, if you are here, dear friend, and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, and you think, well, I don't really need to be saved, I pray that God saves you as you hear these truths this morning. Or if your heart has grown cold and a sense of just familiar, just a familiarity of, yeah, 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 I've heard all of this before. I've moved on from this. I, I pray that these gospel truths will Kindle will warm your heart to the main thing of what Christianity is. He saved us. So let's go to the Lord now and ask Him to bless our time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are here this morning for lots of different reasons. Many of us are here because we want to be here, to worship through singing, through prayer and hearing your word taught. Some of us are here because we feel a sense of obligation. Some of us may be here to impress someone else. Some of us are here because we had no other choice. Our parents brought us along and we're just sitting here. Some of us are here and we're skeptical. We're suspicious. We're, we're, we're not sure about Christianity, but we want to investigate what this is all about. Many of us have been here dozens of times sitting in these chairs, some of us hundreds. Some of us are here for the first time. Whatever our reasons, whatever the circumstances that led us here, Father, you have a purpose for our time together. 
whatever our attitude may be at the moment, prepare us to hear from you, from your word that gives life and faith. We ask, Lord, that you'd enliven our minds and affections to what you would have us to hear this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last week, there were some crucial reminders. Do you remember that? We were reminded to be good citizens. We were reminded to be good neighbors. And we were reminded that all of this is fueled by God's grace. Because remembering the gospel, Christians must be good citizens and good neighbors. Why? Well, because we ourselves are forgiven people. We are saved people. In place of pride then, pivoting off of last week here, in place of pride, what, what we should have humility. Uh, instead of bitter alienation toward the world, we feel compassion for those who need to be saved because of how great our need was to be saved. And that's what I want to do. If Come to verse 3 because Paul catalogs this need for us to be saved, and it's, it's not done in rose-colored glasses. It's a list of depravity that starts with foolishness and ends with hatred. Starts with foolishness and ends with hatred. So have a look at Paul's word about all of us outside of Jesus. Titus 3, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Well, that's, that's pretty stark. I mean, he starts off and says, You were once foolish. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and the like are brilliant men in terms of academics, but they are foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So you understand, you're the same way before becoming a Christian, before being born again. You lacked spiritual understanding. You are blind. I mean, this is what sin does. Sin makes us irrational, unintelligent, and rebellious people. I mean, don't we witness this just minutes after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden? What happens? They sin. You may eat from any tree except for that one. And then what do they do? They try to hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Guys, who said that was a good idea? Oh, I have an idea. Here he's coming. Go, go, go. Hide, 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 hide. Where are you? But, but that's what foolishness is. It's stupid. It's, it's dull-witted. And that's what we once were before coming to Christ. We, we were foolish. We had no spiritual understanding or didn't care for it whatsoever. And as a result, it follows then, if we're foolish, that we are, that's the next word there, disobedient outside of Christ. We reject and defy any authority except for ourselves. 
one's going to tell us. No, God's going to tell us. No, and, and remember, he's telling us to be obedient to rulers there in the flow of the passage in Titus. So obviously, people defy and defy anyone above them. And, and he's saying that that's what you were. You were, you were foolish, and, and therefore you were disobedient. And as the list continues, notice how the image shifts to enslavement. It's, it's enslaved to various impulses and pleasures. Look again in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You know, Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Whether it be money, power, alcohol, pleasure, or ego, our will was leashed to a desire that controlled our lives. So while we choose to sin, we did not possess the ability to do otherwise. The result was not the secular humanist paradise that people imagine will result when God is removed from our lives, right? Imagine all the people killing each other through wars and disease and everything else, you, right? I mean, that's, is, is that, what a stupid idea. Imagine all the people, well, we've seen it. Instead of living in a world of imagine, ooh, aren't this great? We live in a world of pain and disease in which news reports daily talk about shocking violence that people do to each other. Living in malice is what he says. Notice, again, slaves, because they're slaves, these passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, malice is this desire to inflict injury or harm or suffering on someone else. And, and envy involves coveting and lusting and craving after what others have. See, malice is wishing evil upon people, and envy is resenting their good. See, when you live in a world where you think that you are God, everyone else around you is a threat to your existence and your power, and you will hate them and be hated by them. One commentator put it this way, Life outside of the influence of God's grace is destructive chaos that collapses in on itself under the weight of hatred. But this is not where Paul camps out. It's not where he chooses to concentrate his energy. Come to verse 4. But, there's that word, but, that little word can be a game changer. The plane went down, but no one was hurt. Your son was in a car accident, but he's okay. We are sinners, what is Paul saying? And rebels worthy of being condemned, hated by others, hating one another. Not a flattery picture, would you agree? But God has acted to save sinners that are wretched and blind like you. And like me, 
Look what he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's that word, kids. Did you hear it? Washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace... We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You could spend a lifetime preaching that passage. There is so much there. I mean, I was, it's, yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling. Now, as we look closely here at this sovereign salvation, remember God is the, he, he's the initiator. You see that there? We're going to see how that idea that God is sovereign and the whole work of salvation unfolds in at least six ways. There are six, six aspects of God saving us, and they flow around the statement, He saved us. And here they are. He saved us by His kindness. He saved us by His love. He saved us by His mercy. He saved us by re regeneration. He saved us by His Spirit. And He saved us by His Son. I could add a seventh if you could say grace and justification, but you know... We only got so much time here. So let's start with the first one, kindness. Can you see that? Kindness. God saved us by his kindness. It was his kindness that caused God to affect his saving plan. God is kind. He has a concern in his heart toward people in misery. It is God's character to be patient to undeserving, ungrateful sinners. John Calvin wrote, God will never find in us anything which he ought to love. God will never find anything in you which he ought to love. You are unlovable. You feeling encouraged? But he is kind. And in his kindness, he reaches out to unworthy sinners like you, like me, and he saves us by his kindness. The whole thing is initiated in the uninfluenced and sovereign kindness of God. You know, shortly after World War II, as Europe began picking up the pieces, uh, many cities had been ravaged by war and were in total ruins. And perhaps the saddest sight of all was that of little orphan children starving in the streets. Early one morning, an American soldier was making his way back to the barracks in the streets of London. And as he turned the corner in his Jeep, he spotted a little orphan boy with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop front. Inside, the cook was kneading dough for a freshly baked batch of donuts. Uh, the hungry boy stared in silence, watching every move. The soldier pulled up his jeep to the curb, stepped out of his car, and walked over to the boy. Though the, through the steamed-up window, the, the boy could see the mouth-watering morsels being pulled from the oven, piping hot. The boy salivated, and he realized a, a slight groan as, as he watched the cook place them ever so gently on the glass-enclosed counter. The soldier's heart went out to that nameless orphan, Son, would you like some of those? 
the boy was startled. Oh, uh, yes, I, I would. The soldier moved with kindness, stepped inside, bought a batch of delicious donuts, put them in a bag, and walked back out to the cold, foggy morning of the London air. He took one glance at the young, that young boy, smiled, and said, here you go. And he walked away. And as the soldier began walking away, he felt a slight tug on his coat. He looked down, stared at this young orphan boy who sheepishly stood there and asked a most peculiar question. Mister, are you God? Great story. And what I love about this story in particular is the profound sense of the presence of God on display in the kindness of the soldier. And I love the story because this little boy was able to see something that most of us adults miss, and that the kindness of the soldier was a vivid reminder of the kindness of God. The kindness of God. God is good, and He's kind, and He's patient, and He's forbearing in order that people may have time to repent. He saved us in His kindness. And He saved us, secondly, by His love. He saved us by His love. Come again to verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Loving kindness. Now that word love, it's, it's a striking word that he drops in here. It's, you know, you imagine, you've heard that growing up around church or around a Western culture. Oh, God loves people and God is love and John 3.16. But actually the word love here... Um, it is a love that is not just an emotion. It reaches out with a strong affection and pity and compassion. Philanthropy is the, is the, is the word. It's, 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 in other words, the, the, this pictures God's eager affection to touch the life of a miserable sinner and save them, which is displayed beautifully in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. God is the Father, and the Son is the unworthy sinner. The unworthy sinner comes back toward the Father, right? Lives his life in sin and rebellion and wanton living and all of that. And, and Luke 15, right, in verse 20, the Father, when he was still a long way off, saw his Son coming. And what does it say? He felt compassion and ran and embraced his son and kissed him repeatedly. That's the heart of God. He's not reluctant to receive the sinner. He's not hesitant. He is not distant. He is not stoic. He runs and throws his arms around the sinner, embraces him and kisses him because of his love. We are saved by his love. Thirdly, he saved us by His mercy. Notice again. Notice again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. Mercy is a magnificent word. It, it's different than grace. Grace relates to guilt. Mercy relates to misery. 
Grace is a judicial concept that forgives the crime. Mercy is a compassionate concept that helps the criminal recover. Mercy looks at misery. Grace looks at guilt. You with me? And, and here he's talking about mercy. And he says, it was God's mercy. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness. I, have, have you ever noticed? Just try this. Try this. Ask someone this basic question. Ask someone you know today who's not a Christian. Ask any Aussie if you were to stand before God and he's asked and say, why should I let you into heaven? Nine times out of 10, if they're not a Christian, you know what they're going to say? I'm a pretty good person. Well, I mean, I haven't killed anybody and took my kids to soccer and dot, 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 dot. And sure, they haven't killed anyone, as you hope not. And, and relatively speaking, they're hopefully good, a good neighbor and, and all that stuff. But, but my dear friend, you make no contribution to your salvation except the sin which needs to be forgiven. You have no capacity to make a contribution. In no way can you earn your salvation, deserve your salvation, or contribute to it. Your rescue and your transformation, your deliverance from sin and death and hell come from God and God alone. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which needs to be forgiven. This is what Paul talked about in Philippians 3. Go, go to the left quickly. Look at Philippians 3. He's writing to this church, and he says, if anyone thinks that they're squeaky clean and has a good track record, if anyone thinks that they're a top bloke, it's me. I'm better than anybody. But what credit was that? Look what he says. I had it all, right? I have considered every conceivable human base of righteousness. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He says, watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we for are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying, watch out for these false teachers. They're, they're saying you need to believe Jesus. That's great but also do these things to contribute. And he says, no, 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 no. We put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, just by the way, uh, 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 for the record, uh, look, if anyone, you know, if anyone can talk about a track record, it's me. I mean, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A lot of people didn't know their tribe even back then. He says, I, I know my tribe. I've done my ancestry.com, the DNA test. I spat in it and got it. I'm a Benjamite. I'm, you know, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And you know what? You know what my job was? I was a Pharisee. I was like top dog, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. You know, ticking all the box, I did it twice, just because. I'm that good. I'm that blameless. I did it all. I had it all. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything 
as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him living, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See what he's saying? All those things that I once counted, sort of ticked all those boxes, I consider them scubalon, rubbish, trash, dung, filth, useless. The best deeds we've done, the best deeds that you've done are nothing but rubbish. Our righteousness in God's sight is like a filthy rag. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You cannot become a Christian by going to church. And I realize that many of you have sat in this church for decades and have become part of the furniture and just associated yourself as a Christian, but you're not because you have yet to turn to Christ because you're sitting on your bum and you just listen to the sermon every single week and then you go and you stand, you know the songs and you have a familiarity with Jesus, but you are not a Christian. And on that day, Jesus will say to me, they say to you, not to me, God willing, I never knew you. You cannot be a Christian by just coming to church or by being baptized or, or by taking communion. There is nothing that we can do to become born again by ourselves. We deserve wrath, but we receive salvation. Why? Because God is kind and God has compassion and pity, and love, which is expressed in mercy toward us as sinners. That's why. He saved us. He saved us by His kindness, by His love, and by His mercy. I mean, this is what Paul talked about when he reflected on his own life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He said, I thank Jesus my Lord, right, who strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me in to service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But look what he says. I, listen, I was shown mercy. Can you hear that? That's how it all happened. God was merciful, undeserved, unearned, uninfluenced mercy expresses God's amazing kindness and his astonishing love towards sinners, even though God himself is perfectly holy. That's what it means when it says he saved us by his mercy. And he saved us by regeneration. Remember that word, kids? Regeneration. Now, I want to look closely at this word. I want you to think about it because you could be saved by God's, yes, grace and love and mercy, but you might have a backwards view here. And I hope this is going to be the worth your price of admission if you can get this, okay? I hope that you didn't pay anything, but I hope, but I hope that you can get this. So let's, let's look carefully. Again, who's doing the initiating here? Who's the one regenerating? Well, go back to Titus. Chapter 3, 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this word regeneration, kids, maybe you remembering when Dan was sharing this about that word, it means to be born again, to receive new life. And only God can do that. This picture is the sinner dead in sin and hopeless, can't pick himself up, can't rescue himself. So God comes from the outside and regenerates him, gives him spiritual life. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.5. Listen, he says, Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Could you hear that? Did you hear how Paul locates the time when regeneration occurs? When does it happen? When we were what? Dead. Corpses, spiritually. So regeneration, here's your price of admission, has to come before our faith. If you get that, if you believe it, it'll change the way that you pray, the way that you do missions, the way that you conceive of church. Because regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, you with me? God changing, ripping out. I mean, this is all through Genesis to Revelation that we have a heart of stone and God comes and removes from us a heart of stone. It is God. God is sovereign. If you're a Christian here this morning, the only reason is God first came to you in grace and regenerated your heart. Then you placed your faith in him. That's it. You would, have, you would still be just as wicked and everything that verse 3 describes, and you'd be living in that space, but you're not now because God came to you. Regeneration preceded your faith. Talk about that in your growth group. Suck it down, it'll change your life. It's like the pill of the matrix for your theology. He saved us according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Don't you love all the members of the Trinity are at work here? Could you catch that? It's beautiful, isn't it? Which leads us to our fifth point. He saved us, yes, by his kindness. And fifth, by his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. It's awesome to witness the whole Trinity at work here, right? Verse 4 is the, the goodness and loving kindness of God. That, that's the plan. Can you see it? That's the Father. And then verse 5, you see the regeneration and renewal from the Holy Spirit. That's, sorry, that's verse 5. And then in verse 6, all this is accomplished How? through the work of the Son. The Father electing you in eternity past, the Son accomplishing salvation on behalf of His elect, the Spirit applying the work of His salvation by regenerating your heart. What a tremendous thing it is to contemplate what God has done. He saved us by His kindness, His love, His mercy, His regeneration, His Spirit. He did it all. And finally, number six, by His Son. The person and work of Christ is what made this possible. That's why Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, said, God, according to his predetermined plan, had Christ 
crucified. Jesus came to pay the price for sin and conquer death. By his stripes, we can be healed. What a beautiful display this is. But what's the goal then? Right? We, we've, we've seen now his kindness and his mercy and all, all these wonderful things. What's, what's the end game here? Well, that's in verse 7. What is, he saves us for, he does all this for, for what reason? Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You understand, instead of living a fear of death and the fear of hell and the fear of eternal punishment and under the power of sin, we might be heirs of eternal life and live in the hope and reality of heaven. As the song says, death was once my great opponent. Fear once had its hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness, free from all, all of that, free to live and have hope in Christ. Where are you at with that? I, I'm really concerned about some of you that have sat in here and become part of the furniture and you've heard this a hundred times. I'm I mean, honestly, hear me. I could look you right in the eye over coffee and I'd say I'm genuinely concerned you're not a Christian. I mean, you've just heard this and you've become part of the furniture here. And, and Jesus will say, say to you all on the last day, I never knew you. I am genuinely concerned for your soul. Repent today. Turn to Christ. Today is the salvation. And friend, for those of you that are in Christ now, this is the most, is there better news in the world? Is it, who was the premier 15 years ago? Does anyone even know? Does anyone even care? Does it like, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Who's the biggest nation? Who cares? I mean, you should vote, by the way, and you know, hence the chapter three. But like who, at the end, you get what I'm saying? Who, who won the, uh, I don't know, the footy, whatever. Who won the World Cup? It was, was Argentina, but who won it 30 years ago? No one knows. Nobody cares. All that's going to be done at the end of the day. This is the greatest news in the world. This is better than any concert. This is better than any experience. This is better than, this is, this is the greatest life-saving news in the world. I, I was sitting next to this guy just recently, and he's a business guy, and we we're having a chat. And he, he said, oh, you know, you seem really like, he was saying to me, he's like, man, you seem really like focused on what you're writing because I was writing this sermon. And I said, man, dude, I, what, this is like life or death what I have to share with people. He's like, oh my goodness, what, what do you do for work? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. This is, this is like, this is the, I want to encourage my people, those that have embraced this message, that they've, they've got nothing else. This, and this is the greatest news in the world. The gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. That if you trust in Jesus alone, I think we've made that pretty clear, you receive mercy and grace, amazing grace can be your theme. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like you. Amen? A lot more can be said. Spent a whole lifetime on it. 
but we got to keep moving in Titus, and there's other good books in the Bible to preach. So let's pray. Lord, again, we praise you for your word that cuts like a knife, that lifts us out of our own selves, that opens a window to the real world of how you are saving people for your glory. You do it by your grace. Lord, may we never get tired of hearing this beautiful message, the gospel message. May our, our ears and hearts never just become numb to it, but may it rivet us. And Lord, we pray that we'd be enthusiastic enough to share it with our friends, maybe a, a, a non-Christian friend that we're going to see for lunch today. Lord, we do pray for those that have just, as I, I've said, I think are here and are self-deceived, that have sat in this church for decades and have just become part of the furniture. Uh, Lord, would you grant them spiritual life, cause them to repent. May this sermon today be what saves them, Lord, this, this truth of the gospel. May this message be where the penny drops for them. And Lord, we praise you that None of us could ever contribute one thing to our salvation. Otherwise, it would be hopeless. We are saved by you. It is all of you from beginning to end. Now as we reflect upon the Lord Jesus, what he did on the cross to accomplish salvation for us, we pray that our hearts would be enlivened, and feasting on you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.